Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Michael Tyak has been a constant presence in the Australian musical theatre industry for several decades. His extraordinary contribution has seen him provide guidance and leadership in a variety of musical roles. Audition and rehearsal pianist, pit musician, accompanist, musical arranger, composer and musical director. He began working as a professional musician in 1974 for J.C. Williamson's in Melbourne and entered the world of musicals via their celebrated production of A Little Night Music. He moved to Sydney to conduct the Sydney Theatre Company's production of Chicago, then was musical director for their productions of The Stripper, Four Lady Bowlers, Jonah, Company, Merrily We Roll Along, Falsettos, Miracle City and Summer Rain as well as providing music for several of their plays. He's been involved with many major musicals, including Cats, Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis, Miss Saigon and The Lion King. He's been musical director of many shows, including Side by Side by Sondheim, Chess, The Twenties and All That Jazz, Jerry's Girls, Joseph in His Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and The Boy from Oz. He was also musical director for the production companies Dusty, Brigadoon and The Boy from Oz. Michael is passionate about his work and has amassed an extraordinary list of experiences. Having often been on the ground floor of much of the musical theatre product produced and created in Australia. It is indeed a pleasure to welcome My Tie to Stages. (laughs) You kind of go, is this really interesting? Oh, people will find it very interesting in times to come. They'll go in and they'll they'll dig out the Michael Tyatt capsule... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, a great deal, as indeed we hope to to learn today. So um, we've had Jolo and Scomo. Um, it's nice to talk to Marta. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well, that came about because it was one of the. I think it was Boy from Oz, and it was Max Lambert who called me that first because we had I think about five Michaels working on the show. It always became confusing when someone said Michael, and everyone would answer. And just for differentiation I became Mai Tai and it stuck but there's you know worse things to be named after than an exotic cocktail <laughs> I always wondered what the genesis of Mai Tai was and now we know yeah yeah that was it and it was well before J-Lo or ScoMo or any of those other ones so, so it was Mala that christened uh, <laughs> <that laughs> you I must call him that one yeah let's even get back at him my Tai, Michael, Michael Tayek, uh, what kind of music do you like to listen to? Oh, that's such a tough one. It's, for a start, it's a bit of trying to keep up with what's happening musically. So there's a lot of show things in cabaret. I really enjoy relaxing singers. Um, just albums of particularly female singers like the Nancy Lamotts and all of those type of singers that you can just put on an album of and relax and enjoy. I don't like... I'm not a great fan of frantic music, I've discovered. Uh, so even listening to jazz, um, which I don't do that much of, but the type of jazz I enjoy is the relaxed, kind of Dave Grusony, Bill Evans sort of things, rather than... Uh, screaming saxophones or, or anything else which is remarkably clever and you listen to try to listen to everything just to get a bit of a handle on it not much of a pop person although uh i must say some of the sort of pop songs are, are actually pretty high quality these days and they do pop up in auditions and things so you need to get a keep in touch a little bit with what's happening musically but at home, it would be orchestral music, um, like I say, uh, relaxing singers, cabaret artists, uh, and then trying to listen to new shows and things that... That, that you'll do for your job. Well, yeah, yeah. that's the essentially research. Plus, these days, because of not so much doing big shows anymore... There's such a turnover in the type of music that you that you have to have to perform, like doing the Trevor Ashley Conchita Worst concerts. All the Conchita stuff is um, wonderful, 
great music, but there's quite a lot of stuff just to research, keeping up with things that you might have to do, uh, which I really love. I love digging into YouTube and um, uh, the Apple rabbit, Music and the just, rabbit hole of YouTube is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just um, great to listen to. To um, I really love the work that arrangers do. I think they make some extraordinary sounds, particularly if you're lucky enough to work with a big orchestra and you hear what can be done with um, with orchestral colours. Just well, you think of a song like um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, oh, which yeah. has been treated in so many, so many different, ways. different ways. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and there are certain renditions that speak to you and others that... Yeah, yes. And I, mean, I always find I get attached to the first one I hear, the one that makes me fall in love with the song. It's very hard to shatter that impression. Well, it's a bit like a cast album too, isn't it? You hear that original cast. <laughs> yeah, or shows you work on that then then maybe get an um, a encore season at some point. You go, this isn't quite as good as what I remember or this isn't like we did it when we first did it. I'm, I don't want to name names too much, but because of Chicago was such a big part of... of my life when I first moved up to Sydney and that extraordinary production with Nancy Hayes and Geraldine Turner and Judy Kennelly and Terry Donovan this new production of Chicago which I just can't warm to in the same sort of way I I love the production values that were thrown at that in 1981 and the originality of everything in it whereas now yes it's very original but it's very much a semi-stage concert and people dressed in smart things. It's a lot about the dancing and less about the the character of the show. Even though they've had great people in it and lots of good things and audiences love it, I just missed that 1981 version. It would be great to see another production, wouldn't it, that, that is not that concert version. Um... Yes, I know, to see something fully realised and, and just taken in a, in a different direction. Because that, that original production of Chicago in 81 that you worked on, that was an all-Australian yeah, creative team. Yeah, Brian cast. Thompson, Richard Werrett, Ross Coleman, um, uh, uh, Roger Kirk. Uh, yeah, it was a fantastic collection of people and it was one of the first times that I'd worked on a show which was all being created by the by people that were in the room. Because my earlier life in Melbourne was all with JC Williamson's and it was... Gypsy and The Wiz and reproduction shows um, that was a wonderful way to learn. And a lot of, um, other than that, I was doing a lot of theatre restaurant and things as a piano player. So, um, yeah, to come up and work on something like that that was being put together. Did you know much about Chicago before you started rehearsal on it? I'd heard, I had the album. I think um, I, I was given the album of, Chorus Line and Chicago, I think, is a birthday present in about 1978. Uh, and that's when I first listened to it and went, oh, this is fabulous. I love this. And then uh, in 1981, that opportunity came up to come up and do the show. Had you, you were MD on it? Uh, no, or? Peter Casey was right. was technically MD, although he was working on other shows and I was conducting it and leading it and playing. So... Uh, in a vast career, Mai Tai, you've um, contributed and observed from many vantage points, the audition room, the rehearsal room, the pit. What's your favourite part of the production process? Oh, it would be rehearsals. Yeah. Just, it's watching people work. It's watching people do what they do, um, absorbing information, adding their own, their own soul and personality to what, what they're doing. Um, marvel at how dancers learn choreography uh, it, so quickly it astounds me yeah I, I played for lots and lots of dance rehearsals over many years I just, yes I find it extraordinary that they can pick up all that retain it and and do it well I've always thought that they must have like musicians a very good mathematical brain uh yes yeah I suppose so I, mean, I guess it it comes down to a training and technique and and the way as a musician you process music uh, and how that makes you remember it. Uh, 
in terms of, I mean, that comes into the whole thing of how do you memorise things, which is partly with music, with songs. Certainly, if I can kind of hear the song in my head, I can sort of play it. If I remember it well enough to be able to sing it to myself, then I can fill in the rest of it. Uh, well, it's, it's the same with dancers. They've, they've yeah. learned how to do things and you show them something and it all processes into some sort of whole. Right? It's like those, those childhood mantras of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, <laughs> or 30 days has September. <laughs> but, yeah, I, yeah. I, I suppose it is. It's just something you learn that's a whole collection of memories that, that for musicians it's harmony and melody and how all that works together. And I, again, I marvel at, at jazz musicians who take that fundamental harmony and can reprocess it in a in a angular tang- Pull it apart tangential and way, it, and... Uh, and it can be absolutely remarkable. Which my brain doesn't work quite like that. I can do a sort of music theatre version of jazz and a cocktail piano version of jazz, and you learn a lot by listening, but not when you hear people that do that just by instinct and. I imagine it has to be instinctive. I don't think you can you can teach fundamentals, I guess, of modal mm. creation and harmonic substitution. But it just feels so organic that um, I have enormous admiration for that. But we all admire the things we can't do, don't we? Absolutely right. I love, I love actors. I think they're extraordinary as well. And um, it's that's why rehearsal rooms are, are amazing. The grass is always greener. <laughs> I don't think, oh no, I wouldn't want to be a dancer. No. I, I would have, my career would have ended 40 years ago. Uh, but yes, uh, I think to be able to look at the work that people do, I, you know, I can't draw, I look at art or just people who draw a few lines on a piece of paper and it looks amazing. I, I marvel at that too. So uh, I'm glad we all have our little skills and talents and we all fit into this world somewhere. Now, you grew up in Melbourne. Yes. When did you first sit down in front of a keyboard? Oh, goodness. I was probably about four. My next-door neighbour was were two elderly sisters, which when you're four, they were probably 40. But um, they, I used to wander over to their place. They had a piano, and it was a pianola, and they would play piano roles, and I would be fascinated by listening to that. And um, uh, Queenie taught me to read music. I had flashcards, and and I'd and they both the sisters played, and so I'd just play Queenie and Queenie and Nell. Nell, right? Um, and they taught me to play, and we'd play duets. And so by the age of five, I suppose, I was able to have a little understanding of music and I would just be fascinated by the piano and piano rolls and the sound of, of, of piano. Then I started having lessons when I was six um, with a with a lovely music teacher in Melbourne. Uh, we didn't have a piano for the first year. I used to go next door to the to the neighbours. Because there seemed to be a period uh, where every household had a, a piano. Yeah, we had a 50s. piano when I was very, very young. I seem to have this faint memory of a piano in the house, but it it, it wasn't there when I started to... Well, a time before televisions, I suppose, when that was the only entertainment. Yeah, let's gather around the piano and have a good old sing-song. Sing <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and I used to love it. At primary school, I just have memories of the books of music which had wonderful covers on it and being fascinated by what was in those books um, and then you know the people someone would play the piano probably quite badly and we'd sing I didn't much love the singing but that was all right uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed the music and somehow I I was just fascinated by the piano. So Well, that fascination and enjoyment, I suppose, makes your practice a lot easier. You were somebody who practiced? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, it's great when you start when you're six. You don't realise how boring it all is for that first four, four or five years. Um, it became much harder to practice when I was around 12, 12, 14, I suppose. Because there were other distractions? or Yeah, I think you'd moved into high school... Um, 
friendships and thing and just not even time pressure just yeah distractions and uh well, adolescence too you're growing yeah and, and playing the piano at the level you could play it at at that point wasn't really especially cool although in um sixth grade i um there was a piano in our uh, classroom and the teacher there used to love starting the day with a song so um i would always play for that then that was when and i because i could play songs not just bark minuets or or anything else um i i could see that it was a useful commodity and i really enjoyed playing for that and we'd sing the happy wanderer or pokare kare ana or something uh and it was great because once you got past that period of about 12 to 14 and when you start i started branching out and playing more different types of music that's when it does become a social commodity and not uncool uh because people could other people who played instruments could play with you or people who enjoyed singing or you could play songs rather than just just classical music yeah. um so despite the fact that you could feel like a bit of an outsider being a, a musician uh it managed to become a, a social advantage were there school musicals happening at school that you played for did you play we never had school musicals but we did have a very well until the final year i was there when we organized one ourselves um but we did have a school that had good musical qualification it was Camberwell High School where Carlin and Oge went wow. i was a little before her <laughs> Dan, uh, Danny too i said Danny yes they all all the Oge family went there um they had lots of choirs we had a choral festival each year where there would be instrumental music and everybody in the school would sing and as i got further along into the into high school there was a dance band we had small jazz trio uh madrigal choir um so there was a whole lot of different types of music to play which was really good uh and then when we got into sixth form or hsc um the music teacher at the school actually had a little bit of a breakdown and so Uh, we as a group of students kind of took over a lot there was myself um Robert Gavin who became a musician and worked in theater quite a lot and is still around I, I think he emceed a lot of Melbourne theater company shows um he did do some he did yeah. he did spring awakening up here he worked on candide when that was done by nimrod so he's been in and out of of commercial theater a bit but um he and i were in the same year um richard roberts who's a set designer yeah. he was in the same thing so we went well let's we should do a musical in our final year there and we did the boyfriend because it's a great one for schools which was an all student production we had richard designed it and played bass um i played piano robert md um we had a student director a student choreographer uh and it was a great it wasn't an introduction to theater because i'd been going to theater and musicals quite a lot but um it was great to have that hands-on experience of doing a show um it really it was a very satisfying and enjoyable time despite so, doing hsc at the same time so was there anyone in the family that was musical it sounds like you were you were going to a lot of theater and musicals yeah, you're saying but yeah no 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 one was musical um my my mother and grandmother took me to my fair lady and camelot and king and i the three that i remember really well as a child i was probably 8 or 10 uh and then i stopped going until until I guess it was year 11 for me <clears throat> and then went to see I had another friend who was really interested in shows as well and we we just would go and see shows and saw 
Promises, Promises, 1776, Man of La Mancha, uh, and just loved all of that. What was in your record collection at home as far as cast recordings go? Every household well, seemed to have my The Sound of Music was one that was there from the, the movie of Sound of Music was there from forever, as was My Fair Lady. Um, other ones, I don't know that we had a lot of cast albums. It wasn't until I started working theatre that I started getting a sort of a collection of those. I did love um, a Danny Kaye recording of Hans Christian Andersen, which, I don't know, did you have that one too? Yep, yep. Yeah, yep. everybody had that. Yep. Uh, and Tubby the Tuber on the other side, yeah. Uh, it's all those things that had a theatrical storytelling bent to them that, that gets you into, into all of that. Um, one of my favourite shows is Minnie's Boys. Oh, and, um, gosh, did you? I, I've heard for years about this um, production. production that John Dietrich had got together, and then I was delighted to see that you were also involved. Yeah, Tell yes. me about Minnie's Boys and that, <laughs> that famous production. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Um, how, did I, how did that all come about? A, a friend that I, that I, the friend that I went to quite a bit of theatre with went to Melbourne High School, which is where... John Diedrich was going as well. He was a year or so ahead. Uh, and Melbourne High School in Melbourne did lots of very big shows. They did fabulous production of Carmina Burana and Orpheus in the Underworld and things like that that John was invariably in. And I went along to see those. It was about a year or so after that that John decided to do Minnie's Boys because uh, he'd been a huge Marx Brothers fan. If you don't know Minnie's Boys, it's a show about the Marx Brothers. And, um, their, and their mother. And their mother, mm. Minnie Marx. Wonderful. It's really a fun fun musical. And and great songs. Yeah. Larry Grossman. Mm. Mm. Yeah. John was using a lot of those people from the Melbourne High School period to get it on, particularly musically. Um, I think Peter Anderson, who I don't know that he ever went into theatre, uh, he was conducting it and the friend I was playing with was, uh, knew was um, playing flute uh, and they asked if I wanted to be the piano player just because they knew I played piano and it sounded like enormous fun so I didn't really do the rehearsals I just played in the pit for it. John collected an extraordinary bunch of people I mean a lot of it was his family his sister was playing mini John was Groucho of course um, and a fantastic bunch of people, I think a lot of who went on went on to become professional dancers or performers of some sort. Uh, it was just, it was the first time I played in a band of that quality. Uh, not that our school bands were terrible, but it was a big, you know, four saxophones, three trumpets, two trombones, I think. It was a good sort of... 20-piece orchestra and it sounded like um, real show music that was that got me very much hooked on that sort of sound from certainly my recollection of it, it was a, an amazingly good production John did a lot of rewriting of the script puts in lots of little sketches of the Marx Brothers thing and I think it ran for about two weeks maybe wow. um, Really great experience, I'm sure. Was it done at Melbourne High or what? Theater? No, it was done in, I want to say, St Patrick's Church Hall. St Patrick's Cathedral there had some sort of hall just near that, just out on the fringe of the city, East Melbourne, I think. Somehow John got it on. I know he's spoken about it as well. I don't know whether you've interviewed John Deidre. No, he's on, on my wish he list. Should be on should yeah. be on your list because he's had an interesting career. But, yes, getting that one on, I think he was cleaning toilets in South Melbourne, trying to raise money to do it. And um, he got it on by grit and determination. And Wow. And effectively, you're all high school age. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would have been within a year of leaving. Well, um, because John was, I think he might be two years older than me. We share, share the same birthday, oh, as a well, matter of fact. Well. Uh, uh, I think he kept his association with Melbourne high school people. I think I, I might have only, I think I was sixteen. Right. So I remember 
Carol Channing was in town doing a show at the Princess Theatre and her musical director came along to see Minnie's Boys because he'd actually played piano for it um, on Broadway. On Broadway. Right. Uh, and he said, you played this as well as I did. At the age of 16, you're playing it as well as I did. Very complimentary. Absolutely, wow. It kind of goes to your head when you're 16. <laughs> a nice but, time to be hooked. <laughs> yeah, but a, a great experience. And just it added to this, this slightly getting hooked on musical theatre thing that that happened. Because you then went on to uni and you studied law. Yeah. Um, how, how long did you study the, the law degree? I didn't quite finish the second year. Right. I did one year. I, I didn't warm to university, um, for one thing, but I'd done well at HSC, partly because I'd done two music subjects and done well in those and I was good at English. So my HSC schools were very good. And I felt this obligation to go to university and do something, but I didn't want to do music because I'd been doing music all my life and thought, what does a music degree from the conservatorium give you? I didn't want to be a classical pianist. Um, I didn't want to be a music teacher. So that didn't make any sense. So law seemed like something to do. Arts didn't seem like it would lead anywhere in particular. But yes, it was not a good choice. Um, I didn't mind the first year because it does make you think criminal law and legal process is all useful stuff. Yeah. But I wasn't enjoying university and wasn't really warming to the law course. So I finished the first year and, and started the second year. But um, then it was constitutional history and the law of torts and contract and conveyancing. And I really thought, this isn't for me. Uh, and with the thought that the only other thing I could do was play the piano. And I was, I'd been playing in a restaurant for a couple of nights a week with, with the, the trio. Uh, which is great for learning that cocktail piano repertoire. And I played for a strange little review that was on down in Rosebud for four nights um, with fully professional one. Denise Drysdale was in it. Oh, Ding Dong. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> Lindsay Edwards, a couple of other people. Oh, Lane Lamont, who all, you know, very good people. And I don't know why... I don't know how they got onto me to come and play for this review called Oops. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, but uh, I sort of thought, well, I really enjoyed this working in theatre thing. So I contacted JC Williamson's and just wrote to, wrote to them saying, I'm a piano player. Uh, I would love to, I mean, I'd, really enjoy theatre and musicals and uh, well that, that took, just, some, took some chutzpah well I guess so yeah it's just but if you don't ask you don't know do you yeah, yeah. and it was just kind of well let's just put it out there and see what happens because huh. I would hate to be trying to get started now and I mean I've had some of those letters from people um, or emails from people now or introductions from people of, of good people and it's hard. It's hard to give advice, and it's sometimes hard to to help them. But it was just luck, I suppose. Lucky, good time. At the time Pippin was on, so John Farnham and John Colleen, Farnham, Colleen Hewitt, that production. Um, Brian Buggy in Melbourne was the conductor, and he he answered and said, "Come in and, and let's have a chat," which we did, and. He said, come and sit in the pit for Pippin for a week and observe and see see what it's like. Um, Pippin was moving up to Sydney and a little night music was moving down from Sydney to Melbourne. The two piano players from Pippin were going up to Sydney to do the show. He said, so we need a piano player to play in the pit for a, a little night music. Um, so I auditioned with, he gave me two of the pieces from Pippin to have a look at for a few days and come in and play. And To a Sondheim a bit daunting for your first show? Was I, that your introduction to Sondheim? Yeah, I didn't know Sondheim at the time. Uh, and I listened to a little night music and thought, 
wow, this is extraordinary. This isn't like Minnie's boys. Um, and it took me a little, a little while just to kind of get into the mindset of it. And then just went, this music is beautiful and fantastic. And um, yeah, so that was my first show playing in the pit in 1974. And in, what a cast also. Jordan yeah. Turner and Jill Perryman. And Jill Perryman, Bruce, Bruce Barry, Barry Dave, Anna Russell. Uh, Bartholomew John. Bart John, yes. Uh, Wayne Harrison. Uh, it was, um, yeah, it was fantastic. And that sort of got me introduced to J.C. Williamson's and to um, and to being a professional musician. So I put my law course on hold. <laughs> on hold. About five years later, I got a, I got a letter from the University of Melbourne saying... Um, we notice you don't have any credits for the last few years. Your case is going to the Unsatisfactory Progress Committee. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh dear, yes. do your worst. You, uh, talk, you talk about kids starting today. Um, the frustrating thing for them is to work out how to achieve their goals and their dreams. But the more I talk to people with these podcasts, the pathways to the careers that they've had are extraordinary. I mean, yeah. it is based on luck. It's it right, is, it's right, luck, right timing, time, um, having just, the talent, having yeah. the passion, the hunger. Yeah, uh, and I'm not a, I'm in no way a driven or ambitious person. Um, that was probably the one bold move I ever did was was writing to, writing to um, J.C. Williamson's, writing to Her Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne, and going, "Do you need a piano player?" Because uh, I didn't know who else to right to at the time I didn't well there's either J.C. Williamson or Garnet Carroll I suppose that were producing commercial musicals yeah um, it's um and Mr. Brodziak yes Aztec yeah <laughs> I did some shows for them that was fun yeah. well because of the connection with John Diedrich we um we went on and did Gershwin and the 20s and all that jazz which was sort of led by John and John O'May um and we did these interesting small shows at the Children's Arena Theatre in Melbourne at midnight for two nights a week. We did Gershwin first. Uh, Why midnight? It just seemed like a thing to do. It was, well, everybody was working. Um, John Diedrich, I don't know what show he was in at the time, but he was in a show. John O'May, um, I can't remember which show, who was doing what. Um, Natalie Moscow, with Magic Show on around that time. She may well have been in that. And Caroline Gilmer, I think, was doing a play. And they, they were the cast for Gershwin. They all, Caroline, Natalie, John, John and Tony, all lived in um, the same apartments in Millswood Street in South Yarra. And they just decided, let's... Put on a let's show. Let's write a show. And yeah. John and John did... A lot of the writing, although I think Caroline might have done some adaptation of that. They no doubt all worked on it together. And I came in as sort of the musical person to help put it together. It was almost like a sort of hobby project. And this went, well, let's do, let's do it at midnight on, on a Friday and a Saturday night. And at the time, it, it seemed like um, it really found an audience. Children's Arena Theatre probably seated 80 people, maybe. And it was a big theatrical thing. All people from shows everywhere would come out at midnight. It was about an hour long, hour and ten minutes, maybe. From midnight till 1am. You could never do it now. The neighbours would complain. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I suppose it seems silly to start at 11.30 or something. You might as well go, oh, let's just start at midnight. Yeah. But it, we'd run it for six or eight weekends, I think, doing Friday and Saturday night. Mm. And it was marvellous. And then followed it up a couple of years later with the 20s and all that jazz, which eventually Ken Brodziak, which was the connection, took and put the show into Her Majesty's in Melbourne. And you went to Asia too, I think, didn't you? We did. We went to... Um, Derek Nimmo used to run a circuit of doing plays and shows through through, well... We went to Hong Kong, Bangkok and Dubai. He did had theatres run through the hotel chains there. A whole chain of things. And he'd usually take plays out of England 
to um, present to the largely expat populations in those uh, countries. And um, his, I don't know whether it was his son or someone saw the 20s and all that jazz and thought that would be a good one to do as a musical. And we found ourselves heading off to Hong Kong and Bangkok and... Nemo might have seen it. He was probably here doing Charlie Girl or something. Well, yes, it's very possible. He was he was a regular out here doing all those, those the British and... comedies <laughs> that were a staple at the time in Melbourne. Run for your wife. Run for your wife. Why not stay for breakfast? Pajama tops. Hot topsy. <laughs> um, oh, I remember, no sex, please. We're British. Was always coming back. That mm. was, um, and that would always be with the with the Patrick Cargills or the. Um, Derek Nimmo's, can't think of all the other stars at the time, but all those British television stars. Reg Varney must have been out here for some time. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, but marvellous time in Melbourne, and it's a shame because they've been commercial plays now are really hard to put on, but those ones were a staple of um, of Melbourne theatre for decades. Decades, yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably 30 years of all of those. You talked about Brian Buggy answering your letter. He was yeah. a, an MD uh, around at the time, along with uh, people like Dale Ringland and Noel Smith. Yep. Who were your mentors at the time once you got started? Um, well, Dale Ringland was a, a conductor of a little night music. Um, Brian Buggy went up to Sydney with Pippin. Um, and I learned a lot about, about a lot of things from Dale in terms of playing... Dale's a wonderful pianist, um, and I would come in and watch watch rehearsals and and watch sort of how to play for rehearsals and how to adapt a score for rehearsal. Plus, I was interested in conducting. I just observe and and look and um, and he also did. The next thing I did after a little night music was I rehearsed Nancy Hayes into Irene to take over. Nancy was taking over from Pamela Gibbons. So I played for all her rehearsals for that and Dale was conducting that one too. It was the same thing. Of This time I was actually playing for all the rehearsals and he just sort of helped me, helped me through how to look at those scores because the type of scores that were written over four staves, you needed to work out what bit you needed to play and um, just how to analyse scores in that kind of way. Uh, so Dale was probably doing most of those shows at that time in Melbourne. Noel Smith did some. Um, but Kath McGrath, who played for Williamson shows for years and years and was playing for Pippin, she was, um, she was also a good one to to watch playing and, and listen to. They were all uh, so good at that style of musicals that had been around for, for the last 20 years, through the 60s, um, 60s, or late 50s, 60s and 70s. And that's a, that's a style that a lot of young, younger piano players now don't do that well, yeah. I think, um, because music... It was around the time that I started that there was a lot of change in types of music when there were shows like The Wiz and then the the, the more rock-based musicals came in, like well, obviously the Rocky Horror Show, which I've never played for. Oh, really? No, never never done it. Yeah. Um, but there were well, even hair and um, things like that. There was a, there was a change in music theatre. Styles. Yeah, yeah, both from the, from the Rodgers and Hammerstein type of shows into um, into the well, all the Sondheims for a start, um, which are always great to learn. But there's just much more influence of pop music, I suppose, or well, again, you've got pop, like chorus line. The Marvin Hamlish yeah, stuff was Bert Bacharach with yeah, prom, um, promises, promises, and um, there was just a. I think music theatre was really diversifying around that time. It, it wasn't. I mean, I suppose Rodgers and Hammerstein was really a step forward from the Cole Porters and yes. Gershwins. Well, I had to speak to a new generation. Yeah, and um, it was great to sort of be around during a lot of that transition. And I think it's kept it's kept growing, and, and you know, the 
the stuff that's written now, the Pasek and Pauls and the, um, well, any of the contemporary writers, uh, Tom Kitts, the, the, uh, the, they're much more rhythmically based than, than the more classically romantic scores, I suppose, of, of Rodgers and Hammerstein. And also the, that sort of brassiness of um, uh, the Jerry Hermans and all of that era very much changed, uh, and not to, not to mention the the advent of the jukebox musical. Well, of course, yes, an awful lot of those now too, yeah. and that's that's really literally dragging popular music into into the theatre. Some of them are great. Mm. Um, lots of them have been, and some of them have been very good, but. Well, they're so dependent on an accompanying book which supports the Yeah, is the that, or they're literally just a concert. Like yeah. I did a, I did Beehive, which was a 60s musical. Um, it was just unashamedly the music. Well, even the Buddy Holly story and Jolson, yeah. which the whole second act is just a concert. It's just a concert, <laughs> yes. I think the ones, the Jersey Boys, the shows like that that really did have a substantial and terrific book to it, mm-hmm. And obviously, I guess we're going to get on to The Boy From Oz. Um, this seems feels like a lead-in to that. Uh, a lovely segue. Yes. Uh, that was an, another one where the book was all created. Obviously, there were the Dusties and the um, Shout, and the, the Mel Mitchell, uh, Mel Morrow and David Mitchell musicals as well that, that were book musicals around the... the um, the songbook of certain performers. Did you want to get on to Boy From Oz? I'd love to get on from Boy From Oz because Boy From Oz has had an extraordinary um, season in Australia and then going to Broadway and then coming back Back. again as a big concert arena spectacular. Yeah. But you were on the Boy From Oz from the ground floor. Yeah, I did the the first workshop um, which... Uh, obviously, Nick Enright and Gail and Max Lambert had been working on this for sort of quite some time, in conjunction, no doubt, with um, Ben Gannon and Stephen Klein, who wrote the, the book that it was collated from. Uh, and they had reached a point that it was time to get a bunch of actors into the room and put it on its feet and see how it all goes. Uh, and I came in then to sort of play for that. Uh, extraordinary. Uh, again, it's just... I'd done quite a few new Australian musicals by this time. Uh, but this one felt quite different for a start. Um, the amount of money that was being splashed on it. All the other new Australian musicals had been mostly Sydney Theatre Company or... So your Jonah and your Summer Rains. Summer Rains and those type of things. Um, This felt like it was really um, trying for serious commercial possibilities. Uh, So that first workshop uh, was amazing. Uh, Nick Enright is extraordinary. It just... Well, within the first two days, I think we'd cut one major character uh, and a whole, just a whole shift. And the the the, um, the way that Nick was able to rewrite so quickly and um, process different ideas and, and as a creative team, to, to be able to see what wasn't going to work very quickly. So, I don't know, did we do the whole thing or just act one? No, I think we did the whole thing. But it was uh, a major shake-up in the show. But I think that there was still, obviously, the uh, the commercial possibilities were, were very evident. I don't think there was a second workshop. Not on that no. scale. I think it was, it was... We knew there was a rehearsal period coming up um, about seven or eight months later, I want to say. So it was a chance to finesse everything before yeah. production really got started. Yes, indeed. Uh, and there were lots of really good things that came out of that first workshop. The way 
the music was being treated. I think the thing that really stuck was that all the songs were going to work and that the songs had been allocated to the right people and how the songs might be treated was right. We changed a couple of numbers that... um, uh, one of the big dance numbers got changed. Uh, the Legs Diamond stuff was always one of the trickiest sections of the show to try to process. Because it was a significant part of Alan's career also, well, that, that he, huge Broadway musical that he got started, and, but it was a flop. Yeah, yes, and it, it came at a very tricky time. In constructing the musical, there was this... <laughs> there was one day we did a run of... I think we were into rehearsal. We did a run of Act Two, and it was a it was a terrible day in terms of there was lightning and thunder everywhere. So, and it was hard to hear in that Betty Pounder rehearsal room behind what was Her Majesty's in Sydney. Uh, that was all happening, and we we ran Act Two of the show. <laughs> After which, I think Gail just said, "Thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you on on Monday, and <laughs> we'll we'll keep going." And just said, well, it's like we've taken Peter Allen, thrown him off a cliff and then backed over him with a truck. (laughs) I think that was her words. Because it was Greg, his lover, died of AIDS. Um, Legs Diamond was a huge flop. And then his father shot himself. Yes. It was kind of like, is this really act two of a musical? (laughs) We've got the structures wrong somewhere in that these events just seem to pile on top of each other uh, and created this huge problem of how to solve that and I think I think it was solved by well so much had changed during the course of the rehearsal period of the show the whole concept of what the child was in the show um, and I think this was probably the first time that I'd really seen that the detail of, of the dramaturgical work that goes into creating a show um, because of working as part of a team on it um, and seeing minds like Nick and Gail working at it. Uh, The concept of how the child was to be used changed. The concept of the timeline of the show sort of changed and exactly what what the concert was in terms of the show. this might sound all confusing, but... No, well, there's it, a wonderful device that was probably came along later where he descends from heaven at the start of the show. He, yes, I think that was that was always kind of there. And then the concert always became the safe place for Peter. And it was a concert into which things intruded in that way of when you start playing a song, what actually is going through your head? Is it, you know, what, what does interrupt? Do you... Is, do you remember the time that you wrote that song or what what inspired this song? And whether it's true or not, who knows, but it was a good theatrical way into it. And then the whole presence of the child through the show and, and till the, the act of his father's suicide could be accepted by Peter through the device of the young Peter, then that he was resolved enough to write Tenterfield Sadler. Um, which encapsulates his whole which which is his life. life story and he's happy to put it into a song and put it out there uh, so it was kind of fascinating to watch all of this detail of the psychological um, the sort of forensic work you have to put into it in order to create a, a narrative that people will find interesting mm. um, and is coherent. So it was great to see that being put together. You know, whether the audience know all of this or not, it doesn't really matter, but it gives the actors an absolute through line to, to see where they're going. And it just helps with the integrity of, of a show, I think. Um, but it was always a hard show in which to um, allocate music to people other than people, uh, other than Peter. Uh, obviously, Judy could sing, Liza could sing, but apart from that, it's very hard to go. Who else sings? Um, it didn't seem right for his father to sing. Uh, 
his mother could sing, but it felt like Don't Cry Out Loud as should, per- perfect should be the perfect song. And that's the one thing. But uh, other than that, the whole workload lands on Peter. So it, it needed uh, an extraordinary performer, which we luckily found with Todd, who... I don't know. He didn't. He didn't seem to be the best singer in the world. But then, nor was Peter. And but they had tremendous sexuality and charisma. Charisma yeah. uh, and, funnily enough, I, it, Her Majesty's in Sydney. We couldn't see the stage from the pit. We were underneath. So, um, and you'd listen to it sometimes and and hear hear the singing and go, mm, dear. Um, not putting Todd down in any way at all. He was. <laughs> He was more, he was a better singer than Peter, really. Uh, and then I'd go out and watch the show and you never noticed a thing. It was, the performance was all so strong and it was all, everything he was doing was so sort of perfect. If, if yes, if you weren't there isolated from it with headphones on listening to that sort of detail, you would never notice any imperfections in what Todd was doing. Um, and one of the, the, the great musical theatre performances in Australian musical theatre history, I think. Yeah, I, absolutely. And it, it, it was, again, luck and luck and what happens in your career. Todd was always, he'd always been a good, hard-working, um, and he'd had... I think at the time he was understudying Crazy For You. Uh, yes, he was. He was... Yeah. Well, he ended up playing that because didn't Jim... Yes, Jim Walton did his ankle or something yeah. on opening night. Yes, he, he took over doing that for quite a long time. And he'd done um, 42nd Street as Billy, not not the most major of roles, but, you know, he had a career. But this, doing Boy From Mars just changed his life. Yeah. Totally and completely, and deservedly so. Well, I think also playing Peter Allen probably um, changed him a lot too. It he was always pretty sharp, Todd. Yeah. Um, but I think that just opened up a whole side of his personality and um, just gave him the confidence to be Todd McKenney. Yeah. Um, and now he's gone on to be Todd McKenney personality as much as Todd McKenney Perform. music theatre performer. Mm. Let's talk about the Australian musical. Mm-hmm. Is that an enigma? Do you think that it's possible that uh, a big worldwide hit will originate in Australia? It, I think it, it has to be possible. There's no reason why it shouldn't. Um, well, yes, there is one slight reason why it shouldn't, which is just investment. I think there would be the ability here to write it, but where you take it once you've, once you've written it, I don't know. It's wonderful to see something like Muriel's Wedding do as well as it has uh, and potentially could go on. And that's largely original music. As opposed to, you know, Boy From Miles obviously did very well overseas, but it wasn't an original score. And and nor was Priscilla. Nor was Priscilla. Mm. Um, And I would love to say that someone will write that. When you look at... Andrew Lloyd Webber's works have been based on Hollywood films and um, French, uh, well, the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, and the French the, Revolution. The French Revolution. You can write a musical about anything, really. Uh, yeah, and there's no reason that, that a musical based on a Broadway, uh, well, a musical based on a Hollywood film couldn't be written here and be uh, another Sunset Boulevard, if that was a big enough hit. Uh, well, honest with Eddie Perfect well, writing Beetlejuice recently. Exactly. Uh, yes, quite. Uh, there's no reason why Beetlejuice couldn't have been produced here, except who would have the confidence to put the amount of money that needs to be placed into that, plus the the time for development. I know Eddie wrote. You know, we worked on one of the Adelaide um, Adelaide Cabaret Festivals when he was director of it. We did one number as one of the opening numbers for that. He said, this is one of the 14 opening songs I've written for Beetlejuice. Wow. Um, and they they just kept being changed and thrown out. And uh, 
it's a lengthy process and it's expensive. And I just don't think we've got that sort of money for development here. The fact that Ben Gannon and Robert Fox threw all that money into the development of Boy From Oz was a great act of faith. But they did have a a pretty terrific songbook to to start off with. When you're just going from on spec with a whole lot of new work, you'd have to be a very brave producer to do that. Mm. But hopefully someone will do something that either captures the imagination or maybe it will be a smaller show. Maybe it'll be a Little Shop of Horrors equivalent or something that's got a cast of 10 people that maybe one of the subsidised theatre companies will do and then people will see the commercial possibilities of it. That seems to happen in London sometimes. Yeah. But again, it's, it's the faith of producers and and the willingness to risk the money. The angels. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But I yeah, I see no reason why from a talent perspective we couldn't. I I don't know who that writer might be yet. It could well have been Eddie, but I think we've probably lost him to overseas now. Tim Minchin, again, another one. Um extraordinary score for Matilda. It's trying to I think find the right composer with the right lyricist. And a good story. Yeah. Um, obviously, I think the story probably comes first. But the ability to write write really good lyrics and structure a show well is no easy task. Oh. And then in assessing it, we've, you know, over lots of time with assessing new musicals, um, you realise that there's a lot of people beavering away on their own trying to write music, stories, lyrics. Uh, it's a bit of a losing task. Yeah. I mean, got, you know, Meredith Wilson managed that. Yes, indeed. There's a few people who did. Noel Coward did it quite well, yeah. too. I think uh, I think The Dismissal is really an interesting project that that's going to do well. It won't be an overseas thing, because obviously it's, it's a very Australian story. But um, I think what's being done with... The work that I've seen on that, I've seen the two workshops. And but, you know, you could say Hamilton's a very American story too. So totally, who yeah. Knows? Um, yes, except how people would relate to Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser <laughs> overseas. I don't know that they would quite get what yes. <laughs> what's going on there. Um, and I think Hamilton is a success because it's... It's it's, um, it's a reinvented the form, didn't it? Yeah, mm. it, it's a complete... Um, introduction of a new type of music to some extent that influence has been getting there in theatre but this has taken it much further um, and uh, yes it will become the new thing now anybody who writes anything with any sort of rap in it can't help but be compared to Hamilton <laughs> that's going to be a curse for some time for a lot of people I think yeah. Michael, thank you. It's been a, an oh. absolute delight to chat to you over the last hour. And um, thank you for your many contributions to uh, musical theatre in Australia. And um, oh. let's hope 2021 is uh, much more exciting for everyone. Well, I hope, I do hope so. And, I'm, you know, I hope we can all encourage encourage the creation of new work because I think that's one of the... That's where getting in a room with people and working on new stuff is the most exciting thing. Um, getting a room and working on something new is interesting, but something with when you've got the creators there and you're all there working towards the same end is the, the best. That's what musical theatre is. Collaboration, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Everything's on the same page and it all works together. It's just the best. What an astonishing career Michael Tyak has had and certainly proof that he has been an extraordinary contributor to the life and success of the musical in Australia. He's a great champion of many performers and practitioners and continues to contribute in a myriad of ways. My guest today, Mr Michael Tyak. Another insightful look at a life in the theatre. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to The Stages Podcast. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time.